So throughout our life, we have different developmental milestones that we pass through, different moments in our life that we might call developmental milestones, moments that our life takes a turn or moments that are particularly meaningful to us. And when we think back on our life and we think, okay, what are the developmental milestones in our life? I'm guessing that a few things come to mind. And if you're listening to this, I encourage you to think about your own developmental milestones as we talk about this. And the reason why I want to talk about this today is because a listener to the podcast, Derek, who's been on the podcast before, is in school and he has an assignment that he's working on. And part of his assignment is he needs to interview someone about a developmental milestone. And so he asked me to interview me about a developmental milestone. And I thought, well, as usual with everything I do, why not make a podcast about it? This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle. And I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. This episode is for patrons of the podcast, so if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com and pledging a certain amount of funds per month to become a patron of the podcast. Derek, welcome to the show. Thank you. You have been on the show before interviewing me about, I think, the psychology profession and different kind of jobs. Right, careers you're, in psychology. Yeah, and you're uh, in undergrad right now at Evergreen State College, which is very similar to Antioch in that it's a progressive education institution. Which and, was part of the reason that I chose Evergreen. Great. And you w- eventually want to work in psychology, in psychotherapy, and so you are taking a class with another friend of the podcast, Janice Murphy, who was in a recent episode on male oppression, if you remember that episode. And she is the professor in that, in that class for you. Yeah, one and, of two professors. And she is uh, assigning you with this assignment to interview someone about developmental milestones. So why don't you ask me your first question? Okay. So why don't you tell me about your decision to become a therapist? So that as a developmental milestone, right? Yeah. That decision to become a therapist, yeah. I've talked about it before on the podcast, but you know, maybe I could go into a little bit more, more depth than before. The, as the story goes, the story I tell myself is that I had graduated with a business degree at, from the University of Washington in the Foster School of Business, and I was working as a businessman wearing a suit and driving across 520, driving across the bridge from Seattle to Bellevue and working in a market research firm. And I had my own office and I was a project manager at the age of 23, 24. And I felt quite out of my league for the most part because I was, I was quite young. But I also liked my job. I I liked the challenge and I liked working with people. I liked researching different products. You know, we would run focus groups on like early virtual reality things and I worked I was a I would contract with Microsoft doing surveys for their uh, Windows 95. When Windows 95 came out, Bill Gates was having these these big events where he would go around the country and invite a bunch of people and he'd have lasers and rock music and smoke machines and, and all this stuff. And then afterwards, uh, I would provide this survey to see how, the, how it went. I designed the survey and hired the people to implement it and stuff. And then I would analyze the data once it came back in to see, to tell Bill Gates, like whether or not his presentation was good or lame. And uh, so it was kind of fun, you know, just to be a part of that thing. And Wait, so you did that for Bill Gates? Yeah. Microsoft contracted my firm, my market research firm to test their presentations to see how their presentations were going. And we would get other kind of gigs too, like some of them involved telemark- telemarketers asking questions, you know, like maybe there was a, a senator who wanted to know something about how to market themselves. And so we would call, this is back when people didn't have cell phones, and we would call their home phone and ask them questions about like, well, if your candidate said blah, 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 what would you think? And, you know, and I would design all those surveys and, and then I would write the reports. I'd also like come up with how much it cost and, and price it out and, and it was, you know, it was, it was interesting work, particularly for me at that age. 
And I saw my career going in that direction. You know, I was 24, and so there I am, stuck in traffic on 520, driving home at 5 o'clock in my suit and in my white Honda Civic, and I'm, and I'm just seeing the future laid out before me. I, I see, you know, becoming senior market researcher, you know, maybe becoming partner one day or being or working directly at Microsoft or, you know, working up in the advertising field or something. And, and I could just see that progression before me. And I said to myself, is that what I want? And I, and I thought, well, it wouldn't be bad, but it doesn't feel fulfilling to me for some reason. And again, I'm sitting on in traffic, uh, a normal gray and 55 degrees in Seattle, probably like in February sometime. And I also was sort of bummed out that I was working the eight to five shift at the time. It was sort of hard for me. I, I've always been fairly averse to working eight to five, working like a normal shift that normal people work. Like the structure? Yeah, structure and just the the mind numbingness of it all. Uh, being a therapist and being a, a professor and particularly being a podcaster, I make my own schedule. I work when I want and I get a mess around in between things and, and stuff. And so, you know, right now I'm sitting around in my sweats and my comfy shirt and, you know, talking with, you know, you, Derek, in my home and I don't have to commute or <laughs> it's just, it's very comfortable. You know, I'm not in an office and have to look busy for nine hours or something. And, and so that was really kind of getting me down because for the first time in my life, I was working full time, eight to five, eight to five, eight to five. And I'd get home and I'd be tired and I'd go to bed. And then all I could do is just wait for the weekend to finally have, you know, free time. And that, it just kind of bugged me. So again, there I am sitting in traffic on 520 and I'm just thinking, okay, so as I often do, I think about my death. And so I was saying, okay, when I'm, when I'm on my deathbed at the age of 80 or 90 or whatever, and there I am, and I could just see it in my head, you know, just laying there on, on a stretcher or something in the hospital and just being like, okay, well, I've just been given the diagnosis that I will be dead soon. And my life would flash before my eyes and I would look back on the last 80, 90 years and I would say, did I live the life I wanted to live? And this thought really resonated with me. And I often thought about this, but I never really thought about it as much at that moment because I don't think I'd really ever had the opportunity to really think about a career uh, in, in the way that I could in that moment because I, I had a taste of what it was like to be a business person, you know, to, to have a career. And so there I was, I think, okay, well, if I'm going to spend the rest of my life, you know, what do I want to see in that moment? When I'm about to die and leave this mortal coil, what do I want to see when I look back? What is it that I want to see? And I decided I did not want to see what I was doing. Not that I thought it was worthless or terrible, but I said, well, there's got to be more. There's, there has to be a, a more meaningful existence or activity I could do. There's got to be something. And I didn't know what. And one of the things I thought of was to become a music teacher. I thought I'll become a teacher in a high school or something and I'll teach, you know, teaching is great and music, you know, because I knew by then that being a professional musician was not really what I wanted to do because I would have to play things I didn't want to play. And, and I also knew that being a rock star was not likely. <laughs> and so that was kind of <laughs> one of my original career paths was, oh, I'll just be a rock star, you like Billy Corgan or something, you know, it'll be no problem. Of course, that's ridiculous. So I thought, well, how can I work music into my career? And I said, well, you know, being a teacher. But then I immediately thought, I hate dealing with disciplining children. I don't want to have to discipline. I'm not that kind of guy. I, if there's a difficult kid in the class, I don't, I don't want to have, I mean, I might learn skills on how to deal with a kid like that, but I don't want to deal with a kid like that. I don't want to deal with that sort of crap in my life where people are purposefully making my life more miserable or, or don't want to be there and, and they're being forced to be in my class in some ways. And I just thought, you know, that just sounds horrible. And then all of a sudden what popped into my head was to be a therapist. And I had never in my life, thought about it. it. It wasn't a small feeling I had had before. It was zilch. I'd never considered it before. And so again, 24 years old, you know, sitting there in traffic 520 and thinking about my deathbed and thinking about what I want to see. And, and then, you know, music teacher, and then all of a sudden therapist pops into my head. And I thought, wow, 
actually, I could see that working. And I started kind of imagining myself as a therapist and, and what that would mean. What it would mean was it would be extremely meaningful to me that I am meeting with people one-on-one or with groups of people and trying to make a difference in their life. I'm trying to help them. I'm not just talking about trying to help them. I'm actually helping a real human being in the moment. And that was extremely meaningful to me. I also thought about how I've always been really interested in what makes people tick. And I've always been very philosophical, and I love to talk with people about why people are the way that they are and why I am the way that I am. So I kind of see a connection to marketing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a probably not coincidental that when I was in business school, we could choose a number of tracks, finance, economics, marketing, others, uh, other kinds of things, that I chose marketing because it's sort of the psychology of business to some extent. And I actually considered marketing before I decided on psychology as well. So, Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And that, incidentally, the marketing training helped me as a person in private practice, right? Because you, you have to market your business. And it also helps me with this podcast because you have to market a podcast, you know? So I consider it to be somewhat useful, although I don't remember any classes I took. <laughs> I mean, there is nothing I remember. I mean, I, to get a business degree at UW, you have to take like a couple years of, of accounting and bookkeeping and stuff. And so like, well, although that probably helped me too. But anyway, so, right. So there was, a, there was sort of a through line in my life of being interested in psychology. For instance, at UW, I sort of had a, an undeclared minor in music. And one of the classes I took among all the various music classes I took was the psychology of music. <laughs> and it's like, why did I take that You know, back then? I had been in therapy before. I was, again, very interested in the human mind and, and very interested since I was very young on, like, again, why people did what they did. And so there was that. I also liked the idea of being at work and thinking about human beings and thinking about the meaning of life and thinking about what is love and how to get love and how to love people and how to have compassion. I just thought, what an amazing job that could be. To, that's, you get paid to do that? Like, that's just, you know, it sounds amazing to me. It also involved a certain level of academic life that I was sort of craving, you know, the, the idea of learning about that and reading about it and was was to some extent appealing to me. Although the second thought I had right after that was, holy crap, I'm going to have to go back to school, which I have to say, I barely made it through my bachelor's. There were several moments during my bachelor's where I almost quit. I mean, there were very, I was on just on the edge of saying, screw it. Why am I getting my bachelor's? I don't know where I'm going to use any of this stuff and I'm just wasting my time. And I hated school. I just hated it when I was younger. I, I just had almost no motivation. And So are you talking about your master's? Did you get your master's at Antioch? Or is that right. So then, so, then, so then it was then when I... So I drive home from 520 and, and no internet. So it's like actually kind of a mystery to me how I even found out about Antioch. It's like you're young, so you've always had the internet. But when I look back, it's like I can't imagine. It's like how did I... F- find out about Antioch, right? Like if you're just home, no internet, what do you do when you're like, okay, where do I go to school? I'm even, I'm just trying to imagine like what I would have done. I can't even think. Maybe I, maybe I asked someone, but again, I, I wouldn't have known anybody. So yeah, I found out through the podcast. Right. Through you. Or you just Google, be, I want to be a counselor in Seattle and like you'll get a hundred different guides and or different things to click on. So, God, how did I find out? No, I maybe I called a therapist and asked them. Who knows, man? Who knows? But anyway, I, I got connected with, with Antioch and found out about their counseling program, went to an open house, and Paul David was there, who eventually became my mentor and who's been on this podcast before. And he explained a brand new program that they had just started called Couple and Family Therapy. And he said... We'll train you not only to work with individuals, but we'll also train you to work with couples and families. And I said, whoa, boy, sign me up for that. That sounds kind of fun. Even though I had never even thought about working with couples and families, that didn't cross my mind. So, so yeah, what, could, what else could I tell you about that moment? 
So why don't you tell me about a difficult, um, an important difficulty you face in your process of deciding to become a therapist or in becoming a therapist? Yeah, I've told you this before. I haven't, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but an important difficulty I went through was being fired from my first internship. I, again, so this was, this would have been a year later. After and so I, this was a psychology internship? Yeah. So I was a therapist and I was at my first internship and I would have been 25 at that point and completely green, had no idea what I was doing, was terrified and incompetent and alone. And, and I had a terrible relationship with my supervisor. I mean, that's the nice way of putting it. The, the way I would like to put it, frankly, is that he had some kind of issue. I don't know what it was. I, I'll never know. But there was something up with him that made him target me. Like an issue with you? I guess. Okay. But actually, I've heard he, he works in... My internship was in Seattle, and he, he still works as a supervisor in Seattle. And he has done the same thing, as far as I can tell, to several other people over the years. So this is 20 years later. And I've heard reports, direct reports with people telling me stories. And I don't mention that I, cause it'll be like as a professor or something and they'll be telling me the story and I, I don't want to get into the politics of it all. And so sometimes I'll just, people will tell me, oh my God, so he blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, wow, that sounds exactly what he did to me. And so just two months after I started as an intern, he basically forced me to quit and had this letter he had written up that had basically accused me of being a terrible therapist, of being unethical and not knowing what I was doing. And, and at the time, I took it to heart, and, and it was really traumatic for me. And it, 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 felt, it felt betray. It felt like a betrayal. It felt extremely hurtful. I felt like I was, I was giving this guy everything. He was my supervisor, and I was told, look, you're supposed to have a good relationship with your supervisor. So I was telling him everything about everything about my personal life. He asked, me per- he asked me questions about my sexual life that looking back, I'm like, why would he ask me those questions? Yeah, that sounds a little unethical. Well, in a, in a deep supervisory relationship, that's good. You know, it's not off the table. You certainly can talk about it. But when, you th- but when I realized what he, he was gearing up for, because the letter clearly indicated that he was trying to get rid of me from the very beginning. And again, I'm two months into being a therapist. I obviously have no idea what I'm doing. And he had decided probably, you know, seemingly within a couple weeks of me starting the internship. Basically, someone else hired me at the agency, and then they gave me to him as the supervisor. And then it's seemingly right from the start, he decided he was going to get rid of me. And instead of asking me, look, I don't like you, you should quit, he like trumped up this whole case as to why. And none of it made any sense. And a lot of it seemed quite predatory, honestly. But being a 25-year-old inexperienced, you know, person, I was not, I didn't take it the way I take it now. I didn't look at it like, oh, well, there's something wrong with him. I took it like there was something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me and, or there's something wrong with me in this profession or there's something wrong with this profession or, you know, something's wrong here. This isn't just isolated to him. If this is what it's going to be like, then screw this. And so I get back in that same white Civic, and I drive immediately to Antioch after being forced to quit. And And so you were going to school while you were doing the internship, right? Right. Okay. Right. So my first year was classes, second year was my internship, and this is the beginning of my second year. And I immediately jump into my Honda Civic and drive across town to go to Antioch to just tell anybody what happened because I'm, 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 you know, in crisis. And so I walk into the university and I, and I go into the psychology hallway and I can't find anybody that I know. All the professors that I know are not there, including my main mentor, Paul David, wasn't there. But there was a fellow named Tony Collis, who was the dean of the psychology school. And I didn't know him very well, but I walked into his office because I was, I was desperate. And so I told him what happened, and he listened, and he was calm, and he calmed me down, and he said that this happens sometimes. And he said sometimes there's a bad relationship between supervisor and intern, and it's not the end of the world. It happens sometimes. 
and the the key here is just keep going. Get another internship, try it again, and things will probably go well. Maybe you'll learn some things that you can change this next time around. But I have to tell you, Kirk, if this happens again, you're kicked out of the program <laughs> because if you get fired from two different internships, clearly it's you, it's not them. And so even though that last bit, of course, was not very uh, comforting, the first bit was extremely comforting. I thought I would walk in and they'd say, you got fired from your internship. There must be something wrong with you. You're kicked out of the program. Look at these allegations this guy is making. You know, you're done. Look at this. You're, you know, you must have been a fraud this entire time. And once put to the test, we truly found out about the fraud that you are. <laughs> that, was, that was actually my expectation. But he said, it's not a big deal. It happens sometimes. And you just got to pick yourself up again and try again. And, and in all likelihood, things will work out. And that was a incredibly comforting experience for me to really, really fail at something that I was trying really, really hard to be good at. And then to have someone say, it's okay. We got, we got you. That was really good for me. But that was by far the worst moment in my career <laughs> because I was very, very close. Like if he had been a little different, if Tony Collis had been a little different, I wouldn't be a therapist today. If Tony Collis had been like, huh, well, let's, you know, let's look into this because, you know, this guy's saying some nasty things about you. I mean, at that point, I was only one year into my decision to be a therapist. I could have easily said like, well, that was worthless. Let's try something else. You know, I, I was 25. I, I could have taken any number of career paths at that point. And when I was driving from my internship site to the university, I was mostly sure that I was done, that I was like, nope. This is not what I'm going to do. I, I am done with being a therapist. This, that is over. So it was, it was quite a crisis in that moment. So does that answer that question? Yes, it does. Do you want to talk about a positive event? The positive event, I guess, would be that. That moment where Tony Collis picked me back up and was supportive and contained my difficulty and turned me around and said, you can do this. And he believed in me. And that was a big deal. So I'd say that's probably... Uh, the most positive moment, or at least one positive moment I could talk about. So you talked about some relationships already, but are there any other uh, important relationships that you had in your process of becoming a therapist that you want to talk about? Yeah. So the main relationship about my career that I can talk about is my relationship with Paul David, again, who has been on the podcast before. Right. In a nutshell, again, he was there at Open House. He convinced me to be a marriage and family therapist. He was my advisor. He was the guy who interviewed me to be in the program and accepted my application. He was chair of the program at the time. He taught me in several classes. He mentored me through school. He gave me specific feedback on my technique as a therapist. After graduation, he supervised me with my private practice. He gave me clients. He gave me access to his office, his fancy office. He said, hey, if you need an office for free, go ahead and use my office. I was just like, holy crap. He taught me how to teach. He tricked me into being a, an instructor. When you I, talked about that on the podcast yeah, before, right? I never wanted to be an instructor. Well, I thought maybe 10 years from now when I'm, when I'm super old at the age of 35. Yeah. But you did have an interest in teaching, right? That was music. Sort but. of. I sort of had an interest in teaching, but not really. That was I mean, more music for you than teaching? Yeah, it was more music, yeah. I mean, teaching kind of appealed to me, but I never considered myself, oh, I'm going to be a teacher. Sure. I really wanted to be a therapist, and I liked being a therapist. And the thought of also being a teacher, especially at the master's level, was ridiculous to me. I mean, I've always been fairly terrified of crowds, and being a, an instructor, obviously is speaking in front of crowds. And so there was really no way that was going to work. But he tricked me into doing it and and really harangued me and forced me <laughs> to some extent to face my demons and to become an instructor. And through his belief in me, I believed in myself. And within a year after graduation, I was actually teaching my own classes. So he gave me that job. And then he eventually... He worked me up through the university. He gave me a teaching faculty position, which or a visiting faculty position, then a teaching faculty position after adjunct. And then he gave me a core faculty position. And then he gave me his job as chair of the program. I'm now chair of the program that he built 
20 years ago and has been basically the only chair since the beginning. He's been chair of this program for 20 years, and he's giving me his entire program. And he's also been a great friend, and I've watched him as a leader and learned from him. And so he, and then when I started supervising other supervisors, because in my field, to become a qualified su- supervisor, you have to get supervision on your supervision, if that makes any sense. So the supervisor has a supervisor? Right. Okay. And so he was my supervisor as I was supervising people <laughs> and to, so that I could become an approved supervisor. So there's so many different ways in which he personally and through his own dedication and through his own time and effort and belief in me built my entire career. It's, it's pretty crazy. So he's a, a extremely important person in my career. Would you like to talk about uh, the moment when you're, when David tricked you into teaching? Is that something you want to talk about on the podcast? Okay. Well, so it was the end of my master's program so I'm 26, and I'm an intern that had just been hired by my internship site. And so this was the next internship? Yeah, so I got another internship that was 100 million percent better than the first one, and my supervisor was super cool. I'm still friends with her on Facebook, Amy Cam. She, she was great and the perfect person for me in, of, in my life at the time. And so I was about to graduate, and... I run into Paul David in the hallway and he says, Hey, why don't you talk with me about, you know, you're about to graduate. Let's have a conversation because if he hadn't done that, I I just would have graduated and never talked to him. You know, it wasn't frequent for me to talk to professors one-on-one. I just did my work, kept my head head down and like went home, but he's like, Hey Kirk, let's talk. And I was like, Oh, okay. So I met up with him and he's like, so what do you want to do after graduation? And I said, well, I want to start my private practice and I'm going to work at the agency and da da da. And he's like, well, why don't I help you with that? And I was like, "Uh, okay, why? Why are you helping me? And he's like, "Well, I believe in you. I think I think you're going to do well in this field." And I'm like, "What? How? I mean, because I, you know, there's hundreds of other students in the program, and I'm thinking, why is he choosing me? And I've asked him about this since, and he says that he saw something in me, which I really can't imagine that being true. So. I don't know what his deal was that day. I think maybe he just wanted he was bored or I don't know. But anyway, so so he tells me, you know, he wants to help me with my career and he also he probably needed other adjuncts, which as chair of the program now I can tell you is kind of a thing. You always need adjunct teachers to like fill in spots that are opening up. So that was I'm li- li- a likely motivation on his part as well. But why he chose me, it's like who knows, but so he starts giving me these these you know this, these ideas of teaching, and I'm like, oh, well, maybe one day. And he's like, well, how about I give you access to my office and I supervise your your private practice? And I was like, whoa, that'd be great. And, he's, and he says, I'll do it for free. And I'm like, whoa, it's amazing because supervision can cost hundred hundred fifty dollars an hour, and so to get that for free is quite a cost savings. And also to get access to an office for free is also very great because again, that can cost you know, 50 bucks an hour plus. And so I'm like, whoa. And I'm like, well, what do you, what do you want in return for it? And he's like, well, how about you help me correct papers? He said, and I, and I was like, uh, okay, sure. I can correct papers. Um, that's not a big deal. And he's like, okay, well, but in order to help me correct my papers, you have to come to class in order to know what we're doing in the class. And I was like, uh, okay, that's probably a that's probably a good deal. I'll go to class during the week and I'll get this in return. That's fine. So I go to class and I'm sitting there in class and I'm thinking, I'm just here to soak up what the class is about. I, I'm not going to talk. I'm terrified of speaking in front of crowds. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm 26 years old. Every student is much older than me. I'm just going to sit here and listen and I'll correct their papers. And if they hate me, whatever. And then Paul turns to me after class and he says, okay, you're running the next class. You're going, to t- you're going to lecture about Bowen and stuff. And I'm like, what? And so it all made sense to me. It's like, okay, so this whole time you were basically just tricking me little by little into teaching at Antioch. Because he didn't say, hey, do you want to be a teacher at Antioch? Let me, he said, you know, let me give you this. And then what I need from you is to correct papers. And then, and then you know, and then, okay, now you have to come to class. Okay, now that you're in class, you're going to start teaching in class. And because I was so kind of dependent on him for my career at that point, I agreed to do it. I mean, I kind of wanted to do it, but I was also terrified of doing it. And so 
I agreed to only because I wanted to impress him. I wanted to do what he wanted me to do because so much of my career was dependent on him at that point. And so I agreed to do it, and it was, I was terrified. And I, uh, the night before I gave, I gave the lecture, I was so close. This is another one of those perhaps developmental milestones. I was at a crossroads where I picked up the phone I was so I was having a panic attack literally the night before and I picked up the phone and I was going to call him Paul and tell him I can't do this I'm sorry I'm 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 done we're done I'm sorry I let you down I'm never I can't be a teacher this is too terrifying for me I have too much anxiety about this it's a, yeah I'm what why do you even ask me to do this I'm 26 I don't know what I'm talking about why I barely know anything let alone enough to be a teacher we're done but I didn't I decided to push through, again, mostly because I didn't want to let him down. And I did it, and it went better than I thought it would. Go, it would, And that was the beginning of my career as a teacher. So I tell the story that he tricked me into being a teacher. Does it sound like he tricked me into being a teacher? Does it sound that way? Did he say like that was his plan? Like, How did he talk about it? He's never really admitted to it, but I mean, just from my description, does it sound a little funny? It sounds like maybe he saw in you that he thought you would be a good teacher and tried to encourage that through coercion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. Because that's how I see it too. So that was that moment. So how do you feel like the transition from business to... Um, or marketing, I suppose, to psychology affected you? Yeah. Um, well, it really affected the way that I felt about myself as a human being. I went from the, I don't know, the yuppie environment of business where money is everything and status is everything and and the whole objective is to make money and to to exploit the market the best way you can not to destroy people but to find a way to sell things to people that that people want you know that's the whole idea of marketing and i went from that to a career of loving people and i've always seen it that way and a lot, most therapists don't use those words but i do i i consider my work as a therapist to be centrally about love and about caring about people and about having compassion and about loving myself. And so those are two totally different spaces to be in. And so when I made that transition, it was, it was a very different feeling to me, uh, fraught with all sorts of difficulties because <laughs> when you're a therapist, you have to face yourself, which is not pleasant. But it felt much more meaningful to me, that transition. Yeah. So you described being a therapist as love. Mm -hmm. How would you describe business, your career in business in you know, a few words? I suppose there's a way you could be a marketer with love. <laughs> I suppose there's a way. Sure, but maybe like your kind of first impressions. How yeah, you kind of sum it up for for your experience. Your yeah, my 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 experience. I remember having this thought in my mind at the time was that being in business in general was just a lot of paper pushing. It, it just involved a lot of papers. There were there were just tons of because back then there wasn't the internet or email or anything, and so everything was faxes and overnights and couriers. It w there was just tons of paper that was just going round and round. Like, you know, Microsoft would send me paper and I would look at the pieces of paper and then I would write my own pieces of paper and print them out and send them back. And then there would be a memo from the president of my firm and, and then I would read it, that piece of paper and, and sign it and pass it along. And then I would write my own piece of paper and, you know, it was just paper, it was just paper, paper, paper. And it, and I had this vision that it was all we were doing was spending money to shift paper around, you know, because Microsoft would be selling something of paper to someone else. And then they would be, you know, there's just, it's just paper. <laughs> I remember having that vision of just like, I'm being paid to be a part of the paper ecosystem, yeah. you know? And 
it felt very meaningless to me. Yeah. So your three words, paper, paper, paper. Yeah. Yeah. So we already kind of talked about, you know, the person you feel you considered a mentor. Yeah. Um, Paul. Yeah. So were there any other major influences or events that stood out to you during this process? Uh, other major influences during this process? Yeah. Relationships or events or whatever, whatever was important. Well, my supervisor, I could talk a little bit about her. Amy Cam was her name, is her name. She was the opposite of my first supervisor. So at my second internship, she hires me. It was at Federal Way Youth and Family Services, which doesn't exist anymore. It's now a part, I believe, of Valley Cities down in Federal Way. There's a, if you're not from the Seattle area, there's a city near Seattle called Federal Way, which is a very funny name for a city, I think. But anyway, it uh, was an agency, very small agency. There were only like five therapists and me. And so it felt very cozy and very accepting. People immediately accepted me. And I also sort of set out to be very pleasant to everybody. I wanted people to feel comfortable with me uh, as sort of a, uh, as a way of preserving my job. <laughs> you know, I sort of said, well, I better not get fired again because that'll be terrible. So one way to do that is to just be very friendly with everyone and, you know, strike up random small talky conversations with people. And so it felt completely different than my first internship. And Amy was a critical part of that. And, and she, she was just what I was looking for. She was very supportive. She let me explore without judging me. She gave me lots of compliments. I mean, there were crises at times. And when, when you have a supervisor, and I had her for a number of years, and so you're going to have moments where there's going to be problems. But between you and the supervisor? Yeah, between me okay. and her, yeah. There, there, there were times when you know, we did not get along and there were issues. But, but during my internship, I don't think there was ever a problem. And I felt so safe. And then when she offered me a job, it was just like, holy crap, you know, talk about um, validation you know, to be hired by your internship site. And so she was incredibly important, mainly because she gave me hope again, in the human race, you know, after being so abused, frankly, by my first, by my first internship site and the supervisor to go to my second internship site and have a supervisor that was so human with me and so caring. And so, so she was like a big sister to me. She wasn't that much older than me. She's not that much older than me, but, but she felt like a very cool big sister to me, you know, someone who was a lot older than me, you know, not like a one-year-old, like a sister who's 10 years older, you know, like a very caring, unconditional love sort of person. And, and so she was important in that way. And in some ways, I owe my career to her as well. Cool. Well, that's all the questions I have. Okay. So no other randos? I can't think of anything off the top of my head. So. Well, what do you think of what I've been saying? What, anything that pops in your head in terms of reactions or your own career? Um, yeah, I mean, I can definitely relate a lot to uh, what you're saying. Um, I had about earlier this year and kind of in last year too, where I was kind of reconsidering my career in psychology and cause it's kind of a vision I've had for, you know, several years. And, um, so I went to the community college in Olympia, South Puget Sound Community College for a couple of years. So I transferred to Pacific Lutheran University and was kind of struggling with what I wanted to do. And I was taking you know a lot of psychology classes. I was a junior that year, and so I'm a senior this year. And I had this one professor, it was for stats for psychology. And I'm not really a math person. <laughs> and so I struggled in this class. And on top of it, I didn't have a very good relationship with that professor. Mm. A lot of the students didn't. He was a very stressful, yeah, intense professor. And uh, I think his sort of philosophy for teaching was like tough love, you know, and he wasn't very positively supportive. You know, I think he tried to be uh, supportive in like pushing us, you know, and kind of pushing our limits. And, you know, so I can see that, you know, maybe he had good intentions, but um, for a lot of us, especially me as an introvert, I take intensity very harshly. Mm. And so it's very helpful to have like a calm professor and like calm room and stuff like that. Mm. 
And so I knew some other introverts in the class and we all just kind of like agreed on, on uh, the intensity of the class. Mm. He also made a few comments, uh, to me because I was struggling in the class like I said and so I met with him outside of class to kind of talk about it and attune to each other and try to figure out you know what would work um, and maybe like see what was going wrong and what we could you know do to fix it mm-hmm. um, and so this was about like halfway through the quarter probably and um, so I met with him basically he told me that you know maybe psychology isn't for me oh my god yeah he said uh, his words were like maybe you should reconsider another major oh my god why because i was struggling in the class you know and i had a lot of personal stuff going on the last couple years too and so and i tried to be i tried to be open about that stuff with him too you know yeah and just to kind of you know let him know what's going on and um, maybe you shouldn't go into psych i mean what in the world would prompt that someone to say that i honestly have no idea and on top of that too it wasn't just me because he talked with uh another person in the class who was going into law i believe and he told her, based on her writing, that she should reconsider going into law <laughs> because of her writing in his class. And this is just one class. Like, neither of us had had him before. And you you're know? undergrads. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. If you were, like, midway through law school or midway through a psychology degree, you know, you still wouldn't say something like that in all likelihood. But you could, you would have data to say something but if you're an undergrad and you're struggling in a psychology especially a stats class for crying out loud i mean that's a pretty peripheral thing for most people in our field to say something like that there's obviously something wrong with the guy i mean why (laughs) would you say i I would like like to say that (laughs) why i mean why what would i i could imagine thinking it but why would you say that to a student when they're struggling like there's no reason to say that there's, there's got to be something wrong with you to say yeah. something. So and stupid. especially, you know, like as a psychologist, I would think you would be more aware of oh, learning God, no. styles. Oh, and... God, no. Well, you just learned, and I'm guessing you've thought about this, that in our field, it's made up of normal human beings. And as I realized at my first internship site, because that was a total wake-up call for me too, was that I thought, well, if, if not, you're, not only are you a therapist, which means you must be super nice and super mature and super wise, but you're a supervisor of therapists. So you must be like the most wisest, caring, knowing person on the planet. And then to be treated so badly, then you think, well, it must be me. But, but you know, moving forward in life, I realized supervisors, psychologists, instructors in our field, they have just as much a likelihood as being problematic as anybody else. And, th- and that's, a, that's a strange thing for people to realize. When I talk about people in my field to people outside, my, like my friends, I'll be like, oh my God, you wouldn't believe this coworker, blah, 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 blah. They'll say to me, "Is that so that person teaches psychology? He teaches counseling? I'll be like, yeah. And that person's a therapist? And they'll say, yeah. And they'll be like, how is that possible? You know, I get that reaction from people. And I learned long ago, that therapists are people too. And you learned that in that moment too. And it's sad that you had to learn it in that way. But yeah. it's, it's a good lesson to learn though, that you learned it. <laughs> what lesson? What do you mean? Not to trust people in our field in a way that's unrealistic. Yeah. Don't trust them any more than you would trust anybody else. And don't revere them any more than you would revere anyone else. They have to earn your trust and they have to earn your respect. Just because they're a therapist or a professor does not guarantee that you should respect them or trust them. Because I, I learned that the hard way. I just automatically trusted and respected them. Yeah, I think it's kind of the power dynamic there where they have all this experience and it just, like, you kind of naturally have a respect for them. Like, yeah. you know, going into the field, you know, I tend to kind of admire, you know, my professors and, yeah, that changed pretty quickly with him. Yeah, they're human. <laughs> yeah. They're just as screwed up as anybody else. But and, that, and, and they know it. A lot of a lot of them know it. It's not like they're in denial of it. There there are people that I know that work in my field and and teachers too that will fully admit. There's like, yeah, I, I have an issue with that. I, you know, I know I know therapists that know their borderline. Well, I think that's way better than denying it. You know, totally. because like you know, it's like being aware of your biases. That's what we're talking about in class right now. Is yeah. you know, it's better than just like denying it and saying like I'm not. I'm not biased because then your bias is going to really come out in your interpretations and things like that. And there are people in my field, our field that are problematic and don't think they're problematic. They think it's everyone else's fault. So sorry. I think I interrupted you as you were telling your story. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So that was 
a big factor in deciding to switch schools. And I definitely, I had some good professors at PLU. Um, being at Evergreen has definitely been a healing process for, you know, coming back into psychology. And because over the summer between, because my last quarter, uh, last semester at PLU was the spring, and this is my first quarter at Evergreen. And I noticed right off the bat how empathetic and sensitive the professors are. That was really helpful. And, um, you know, I've met with them multiple times one-on-one. Uh, they've just been really supportive that, you know, they think I would be a good therapist. And I, I heard that, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And for me, it was like, damn, that was really like, I didn't realize how much that had affected me. What, you know, what my other professor, you know, at the other school said yeah. until someone kind of like countered it with, you will be a good therapist. Like, I think, you know, I have faith in you. Yeah. I'll mirror that by saying or repeat that piggyback. I think I've told you before. Because you're a younger student, you did you did running start, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. So I'm a junior, kind of going on senior, and you're um, like 19 or 20, right? 19. 19, yeah. right? So you're you're very young, and no offense, but 19 no. year olds have a long way to go regarding wisdom and personal awareness in yeah. general, life experience. Yeah. yeah, but you are way beyond people that, in in my experience, are at the same age, particularly as it is you know, coming into the field, you know, a lot more stuff. Your vibe is very therapist-like. As we've talked about before, you have a natural extreme curiosity, I would say, about other people and have a talent for being able to make people feel comfortable talking about their experience. And I know you also know a ton about psychology. I think you've told me before that you keep psychology books oh, yeah. <laughs> next to your bed. Yeah, in because, my backpack at all times. Yeah, in your back because you always want to flip through them or yeah. maybe you just want to osmosis the energy or something. And, yeah. and you know, that's a, that's a big sign. You know, you're, you're basically a psychology nerd <laughs> yeah. in addition to having extreme talents that lend itself towards listening and compassion and and soaking up wisdom. So, uh, yeah, I have no doubt that you'll be great. I, I've, as an, as an educator and supervisor of many, many young people, I can tell you that you'll go far if you want to. It's just a matter of what you want to do. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, I think you understand probably more than most people how much that means. Sure. So, right. Yeah. And it was really great to be able to connect with you, you know, as we connected over the podcast and through the emails and Mm -hmm. coming on the podcast and being able to speak with you, someone, you know, who's in the field. And you were one of the first people that, you know, I really had like a serious discussion about, you know, careers in psychology Mm -hmm. and what that might look like. And, you know, so that was really, yeah, it's interesting. (laughs) It's interesting to think about how we might eventually have ongoing conversations as your career develops, you know? Mm Mm-hmm maybe even on the podcast or something. Because yeah, for sure. I think that when you came on the podcast the first time, you were 17, correct? Yeah. So, yeah. Man, that was like two two years ago. I think you were 17. So, yeah. so it's like interesting to think about how you know the next number of years, four or five years, are going to be quite formative in your early yeah. career. I mean, just thinking about like how these past, since I've been on the podcast last, how much you know I've progressed and right. learned. And... So it's it's interesting that the listeners might, you know, yeah. hear that. I'm like a case study for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, and an inspiration. I know a lot of our listeners are people in your shoes or people but uh, behind you in terms of thinking about a career in psychology that, you know, you've already decided on. Yeah, I mean, in the last podcast we were, I mean, I was still, you know, really unsure about what I wanted to do. And yeah. now I have a much clearer picture, so... Right. It's cool. To, it's really cool to document that process for me personally too. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So so now you're at Evergreen and and you're feeling much better and it's a healing experience for you in yeah. terms of getting affirmation that you're in the right field, that people are in the field that you can trust, that give you messages that you have talent and you'll be fine and you're, you'll do well in this profession. And so I'm really glad that you stuck it out. Because like me, you in a crisis could have easily said, screw it, I'll just work for Starbucks or something. That was literally like, it's so close to my process because I wanted to just like drop out and work in a coffee shop. Right. Um, And I still, I still want to work in a coffee shop, but on the side. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I, and 
therapists do this. I know a therapist who dropped out and worked for CPS. I know another one that dropped out and became a car salesman. And I, in my early career, when I was much more insecure and much more stressed out, would frequently think that. Because being a therapist is, particularly beginning career, is extremely stressful. It's not like a regular job. You know, working at a coffee shop, you, you go to work and you deal with customers and you go home and that's it. Being a therapist for many people is 24-7. You know, when, when you're not working, you're thinking about working. And when you're in graduate school in particular, you're thinking about things and you're looking at yourself and you have to be extremely aware of your reactivity and your own issues. And you have to try to improve them so that when you're working with clients, you can be as differentiated as possible. I mean, you don't have to do all this stuff, but it, it helps. And and I think it comes natural to a lot of people. Like, you you know, we were kind of just talking about with, you know, it's kind of always at least in the back of my mind. Right. So imagine once you start actually working with clients and that natural drive to look at the self and to think about that. Uh, um, so you're working with clients and, and they're pushing your buttons. You know, they're challenging you. You have you have a client that resembles that professor that pissed you off. You you have you know someone that looks just like him or even worse, and they're touching on those wounds of yours, and you're stressed out about it, and you react poorly with that client, and then afterwards you think, oh my god, what did I do? And I, am I a terrible therapist? Believe me, you'll think that, and you don't have that when you work in other fields. <laughs> And other fields in general, you know, there could be insecurity for sure, but not on the level that therapists feel. It's it's quite a journey. And but again, it also has tremendous meaning and there's a tremendous payoff. And everything that you do in your career, in my opinion, to work on the self to be a better therapist helps you in your personal life. The better therapist you are, the better husband or wife you are, the yeah. better friend you are, the better child you are, the better parent you are in my opinion. Well, we'll have to have you back on the podcast at the next phase of, of your development yeah, so that the listeners can get a check-in on your educational career and where you end up going. I'm sure people will be interested in hearing. I'll be interested in hearing. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. Mm-hmm.